Welcome to Resource on the Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual abuse and assault. I'm Louie Marvin, and I'm a project coordinator at the NSVRC. Today's episode is part of a series on housing for prevention that we co-created with the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence. Our organizations collaborate on an initiative that supports advocates in meeting the housing needs of survivors. And in reflecting on that work together, we became eager to talk about the ways that housing is also a tool for preventing violence. Today, we're reposting an episode from our friends at Valor. They recently published a podcast called Housing Justice as Prevention on their podcast channel, Prevent Connect. And it was part of their series previewing workshops at the National Sexual Assault Conference. This episode features Janae Sargent and Ashley Klein Jimenez from Valor talking with Gabby Boyle a prevention specialist with the Sexual Trauma and Abuse Care Center in Lawrence, Kansas. So, Gabby... Tell us a little bit about the session you're hosting at the National Sexual Assault Conference this year. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my session is titled Housing Justice is Violence Prevention, and it is focusing on the way that prevention specialists, preventionists, sexual violence organizations, you know, um, anti-violence organizations in general can plug into doing systems-based housing work. Um, I think that that is something that a lot of folks don't necessarily feel comfortable getting their feet wet in. So I'm hoping that I can kind of break it down and make it more um, accessible to people. You're listening to Prevent Connect, the podcast bringing together voices from across the movement to end gender and power-based violence to give you the tools to practice primary prevention in your daily life and at work. We're highlighting emerging research, promising strategies, and stories from on-the-ground prevention practitioners doing this work in new and innovative ways bringing you topics like foundational strategies to prevent violence, primary prevention and youth engagement, critical race theory and school climates, prevention in a digital age, and more. I'm your host, Janae Sargent, and this is Prevent Connect. from what I know, my the little bit of research that I did on your organization, it looks like you all are a local organization um, in Kansas. And so I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you all came to take on housing justice as a sexual violence prevention strategy. Like what, what did that look like organizationally? Totally. So in 2018, um, we started to convene the Sexual Violence Prevention Work Group, which is like an RPE coalition. And 
part of that process of starting that up was running a needs assessment in our community to evaluate um, what risk and protective factors were the most prevalent. And one of the things that came out of that assessment was housing. And for a while, for a couple of years, it felt really hard to engage with that strategy. Like that's a really big topic as a sexual violence organization, you know, there's always this feeling when you're doing um, systems-based prevention work that there's like mission drift happening. But as, you know, 2021, COVID-19 started rolling around, the community conversations about housing became um, really hard to ignore. And the community conversation about the connection between housing and um, interpersonal violence was of particular intensity in my organization. We were seeing a lot of clients that were um, having issues, like having their trauma um, exacerbated by housing or who couldn't leave unsafe situations or um, folks who were experiencing like kind of chronic houselessness. Like we we started to notice that a lot more um, as COVID-19 began to destabilize everything. Um, and so I started to kind of connect with housing stakeholders and bring them into this coalition because that felt like a conversation I couldn't have alone. It's not really my area of expertise. Um, and from there, it just kind of snowballed into, you know, a lot of those housing providers felt like they were in spaces where they couldn't uh, speak or plan or strategize freely. And so this sexual violence prevention work group, this coalition kind of became a space where we weren't tethered to something like, you know, HUD funding, or we weren't tethered to their organization specifically. So they could really directly talk about like what they were seeing and what solutions they wanted. And that sort of, like you said, it just kind of snowballed from there into feeling like, okay, this is the strategy. This is the um, risk factor that is the most potent for both our clients and these community stakeholders. Like, let's just dive in. <laughs> I really appreciate that you added a four-year process of taking on housing work because it housing is such a huge and important and daunting issue to take on. Like you have to try to understand housing stuff. I think the vast majority of people would say, yes, we have a housing problem. I'll speak for myself. Then someone says, what do we do about the housing problem? And I'm like, I don't know. What do we do about the housing problem? And I think in our movement, in the movement to end sexual violence, we have always talked about housing within a crisis intervention context, emergency shelters, one night hotel stays, after violence has happened, how do you remove someone? How do you make sure that they can keep their residence? And that's really important. And what I really appreciated about your proposal to NSAC is more of the prevention lens of it and how stable housing contributes to safer communities. I grew up, I didn't have stable housing and neither did a lot of people around me. And so I saw those connections experientially of how unstable housing contributes to risk factors or why someone might be more likely to perpetrate or experience violence. But as a movement, as far as what we do, I feel like that's still something that we're grappling with. So I'm 
wondering about you individually is housing, especially from the prevention end of it, something that you've always been passionate about? Or when did you make that connection for yourself? So I come to this work from the animal welfare world. I was working in our local um, humane society for a few years prior to transitioning to this position. And I did, I handled intakes, animal surrenders, stray animals, you know, um, community support programs like low cost veterinary care. And it was really hard. It was really sad. As an animal lover, it was really hard just to see people having to um, surrender this, like a member of their family, an animal that they love, that they care about. And the biggest reason that that was happening was a lack of pet-friendly housing or a lack of affordable housing. Um, You know, folks were moving into apartment complexes that didn't allow... um, their animal to live there with them, um, or they were um, experiencing houselessness or change in housing where they felt like it wasn't safe to keep their animal with them. And so part of the reason why I transitioned to this work was because I really was like, yeah, felt like I was just like constantly, like you said, dealing with that individual emergency intervention level um, in that setting. And I wanted to think more about how how we can be preventative. So when I came to this position, I was really excited to see that. I mean, not excited, like obviously no one wants to see that their community is in a housing crisis, but I was excited to see that that was one of the risk factors that the work group and that community needs assessment had identified as something that they really wanted to work on because I was like, yes, I, you know, have spent a few years like seeing the impacts of this um, on families, on individuals, on animals, Um, on the community at large, like I'm ready to dive in. So that was, and I'm a renter myself. So like I, it's, it's hard to be a renter, particularly in communities where there isn't a lot of affordable renting or where there are a lot of barriers to renting. So I had had some like um, firsthand experience with that. um, In addition to kind of seeing the more like the, I guess, like social welfare side of things at the uh, Humane Society. Thank you so much, Gabby. It's so interesting that you, where you started and how your trajectory has played out. And I just have to pause and just say, Janae and I are both animal lovers. Um, so you're in good company. <laughs> but I also, so my spouse works in the veterinary field and for years they have told me so many stories of seeing knowing that some of the animals that have been brought in, um, there's like an intimate partner violence dynamic happening where like an animal, you know, is trying to protect their, their owner, their person and is caught up in that violence. And so it's really interesting that that whole like animal welfare world, the veterinary world, I, I always feel like there's, there's some opportunities there for implementation of trying to intervene and support survivors. So anyways, that's just a side note. Um, so Gabby, you mentioned that this work, uh, is part of the RPE work happening in your state. And that's really exciting. I, you know, we have lots of RPE funded prevention practitioners. And so I think one thing that happens a lot, and me included, is I totally see the connection to housing justice and violence prevention. 
I'm so on board. I get it. I love it. And then I'm also like, but what does that look like for a local sexual assault organization? So what does your housing justice work look like? Can you give us some examples? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that is a feeling that I had at the beginning of this work and still continue to have. So if folks out there resonate with that, like know that you're not alone. Um, like the RPE program, at least the way that um, my organization operates it, is it's really flexible. There's a lot of room for creativity, for experimentation, for growth. And so basically what I started to do was um, just use the time um, in my time budget, I guess, um, use my time that was funded by um, RPE to start researching housing and bringing that back to the coalition and asking, you know, do any of these solutions or do, does any of this research resonate with you? I was using my time in like the early to middle stages of doing this work also to kind of bolster ongoing housing efforts. So um, for instance, kind of aggregating all of this different information that we had locally about what the housing crisis looked like and kind of putting it in a centralized place for stakeholders. Like that's something that a lot of people working um, in housing don't necessarily have the time to do. But because I was sort of like outside of the housing um, service provider world, but still connected, I could kind of use my time really strategically, um, again, to ask the question like, okay, what would be useful? And then to begin to bring that information together. And the result of all of that research and kind of like data aggregation and information aggregation was identifying that this was mentioned earlier in the podcast, like this issue goes so much deeper than just emergency sheltering, um, than just intervention. Um, and we really needed to look at policy that addressed the barriers that people were experiencing when it came to finding housing. So in Lawrence, over half of our community um, rents their housing. And we see the um, most significant amount of um, economic burden on renters. So that kind of narrowed down our scope in terms of thinking about, okay, we want to look at tenant issues. Um, and from there, um, we sort of were identifying what, again, are the barriers um, to finding housing. And through our research um, and through my conversations with housing stakeholders, um, we discovered that there was a significant bottlenecking of our um, housing choice voucher program. It was very hard to find landlords that were accepting housing choice vouchers. We have a two to three year wait list for um, receiving housing choice vouchers. And then um, in addition to that, um, we were experiencing a lot of larger apartment complexes um, being purchased by new management who were um, refusing to take vouchers. So like former people who were housed were now facing, you know, they have to move because new management isn't going to accept the income that they're providing to pay rent. Um, and so, yeah, that sort of like that conversation that we were having with housing stakeholders, again, kind of, it was like a process of narrowing of being like, okay, we're working on housing. Okay. We're working on renters. Okay. We're working specifically on housing choice voucher issues um, and emergency rental assistance acceptance. 
okay, we're working on source of income discrimination protections. And that's really what we've been doing um, is just, again, continuing that data aggregation and data creation. Like we worked really hard to um, identify through calling landlords, like how many folks were accepting housing choice vouchers, how many folks were accepting emergency rental assistance, how many folks would work with somebody who had a prior eviction, like just creating that data so that we could really show to the community, like, yes, this is an issue. Um, This is an issue that is affecting X amount of people, bringing that to um, not just the community at large, but also like to decision makers and to policymakers and really like kind of, you know, we, we can't lobby, but really strongly advocating like this is what the data is showing. You know, I've spent 80 hours creating this spreadsheet that really clearly demonstrates like this is a a problem that we can actually create a solution for. And then since that passed, that ordinance passed in February. And since then, I've really been working on using the RPE um, funding and the time that it allows me to bolster um, grassroots movements. So we have kind of a new uh, tenant organization, like grassroots tenant organization in Lawrence. And so I was able to use some of the RPE funding to get them connected to a community organizing training to sort of help them and their members learn some concrete skills that they can use um, so that hopefully I can kind of hand off that advocacy torch to the community instead of holding it at my organization forever. Wow, Gabby, thank you for walking us through that and giving us those examples and like the concrete ways that you are engaged in this work. There are so many like nuggets in what you said that I'm like, we should just have a whole conversation about that piece and that piece and that piece. (laughs) Um, But I think like one thing that really stands out to me is I think when violence preventionists are wanting to work on these more community level issues that we may have not historically been a part of, I bet that like the ability for you to use your time to collect data, um, to create, you know, a database that must have gone a long way in the relationship building because you know, you are bringing something to this work that they, like you said, they don't have time to do. Um, And so I think sometimes we get like tunnel vision that like, what we can do is we can educate people about sexual violence. And really, like maybe the best use of our time is to actually support the efforts that are already happening in creative ways that we actually have time to do. So I just that piece really stood out to me. I don't I want you to come on a web conference and talk more <laughs> about your work because it's really it's fabulous. Mm-hmm. Thank I you. Agree. And yeah, how powerful is it that you're bringing all of the skills and the tools that you already have within sexual violence prevention to housing justice? I think in our minds, we have this like, we have to learn this whole other thing. We have to do this whole other thing. But preventionists have like a pretty rad skill set. I mean, my skill building in this work has been uh, so different than any career that I had a career before this. And I feel like I'm equipped to do so many things. I'm like, put me in a seat, set me, set me loose and I'll do the thing. And I think that requires a big shift for people, right? Because like we have all of these skills, but we're really working in our silos right now. Still, Um, you're doing this amazing work and it's making a difference, Why, in your opinion, why do you think that 
more preventionists are not doing that right now? And what can we do to bring them along into that shift? Because today, I mean, you said it, we have to be working on housing justice. Like we cannot be talking about safe communities in 2023 and not be talking about housing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like we talked about a little bit earlier, like it just feels so hard to even find a foothold in, in the work of housing. Like it is a huge problem. It is a thousand piece puzzle. Like there is so much going on. And also again, to really make, um, sustainable change, you have to start working in policy which a lot of prevention specialists may already be doing, um, like policy relating specifically to sexual violence, but they may not necessarily feel comfortable kind of taking those skills and applying them to something like considering policy changes for housing. Um, I think that it is very intimidating to just like dive in. And again, I also think that it's almost impossible to do this work if you are also having to do crisis intervention at the same time. So I'm really privileged in that at my organization, I don't, um, like I only do RPE work and then like community education, consent education. I don't do any direct service. And it's a privilege because like I can compartmentalize in my brain, like, okay, I'm working on housing in a way that is kind of abstractly connected to violence that I know eventually is going to impact violence, but in the, the short term you know, is not, um, it's not intervention. It's not crisis intervention. It's not helping the survivors that I'm talking to every day. Right. Um, and so I think that that's one reason as well is that like kind of creating that space in your brain to step away from direct service, to step away from advocacy, to step away from intervention and to kind of think more deliberately, more slowly, more carefully about the big picture like a lot of people, unfortunately, don't have the space in their position to do that. As a side note, like a lot of folks feel like they can't engage in policy work because so many like federal and state um, funding prevents lobbying or prohibits lobbying. And um, that was something that I was really trepidatious about. Like I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my job. Like I'm researching policies and like presenting, you know, this information to decision makers. Um, so I think it's really useful also to have like frank conversations with grant officers about where that line falls for the grant and what activities someone can and can't engage in when it comes to policy work, um, in addition to familiarizing yourself um, on your own time with um, what that line looks like. There's an organization called Boulder Advocacy that has a lot of really great resources. Love Boulder um, Yes, they're wonderful. They were like, like I said, like when I first started doing this, I was like, I'm going to lose my job. But um, I didn't. And my grant officer was super supportive and Boulder, like just having those resources of being like, okay, like, you know, what I'm doing is allowable. It's not mission drift. It is connected to sexual violence. And I'm not going to like have a bunch of funding withdrawn for it was really useful. People, when they think about policy, they're like, I'm going to the state, I'm going to the Capitol mm -hmm. and I'm lobbying for a thing. Policy is also organizational policy. It's also your city council's five-year plan. Like so many things are policy 
Sometimes it bums me out that we have just like this big umbrella bucket term because it's zero or a hundred, right? Like policy means AB 2930. And I'm, you know, doing this whole thing around it, but it's not. And I think maybe we need to work on our terminology around policy too, because I think the vast majority of people that I talk to would not think that going to their city council or their county board of supervisors and talking about housing is bad. They just don't know that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, like, it's not just going to the state. It's not like really hardcore, like doing policy briefs. It's literally just building relationships with stakeholders in your community that have influence. Um, and when it comes to things like, for instance, a city strategic plan, Generally, sexual violence organizations are not included in those conversations um, because people have such a hard time making the link between things like economic justice, housing justice, um, education justice, which are often included in, you know, like five year plans for cities and counties. Um, people have a really hard time making a link between those types of justice and then violence prevention. So a big part of policy work is just kind of elbowing your way into those spaces And being like, we deserve to be here. Like we actually, you know, we have this issue that connects to everything else, whether that be healthcare, whether that be education, whether that be housing, whether that be animal welfare, right? Like we have a space and a voice and like information that is valuable and necessary to create um, a comprehensive plan or a comprehensive strategy for a city. If you're looking for more content like this, head to preventconnect.org. We've got tools, guides, and resources on how to prevent sexual and intimate partner violence in your community, all for free and in one easy to access digital space. From live web conferences and recordings to a running blog, resource library, e-learning, and online community, Prevent Connect has everything you need to implement and evaluate innovative prevention initiatives in your community. All of that and more available for free at preventconnect.org. So Gabby, we don't want to give too much away about your session. Um... We would love to just have you uh, tell us everything that you're going to talk about. But (laughs) we want, you know, the point of this is we want people to be really excited um, and look forward to actually being able to attend your session. But just a question about it. What are you hoping that people take away from your session at the National Sexual Assault Conference? I hope that people take away a feeling of like hopefulness and optimism Um, when you're doing systems-based work, whether that's in housing or, um, really any other like community systems level risk factor, it sucks. Like it's, it's easy to burn out. It's really easy to kind of get just overwhelmed with all of the work that needs to happen. It's really easy to experience like that secondhand vicarious trauma of seeing the way that all of these systems interact to cause harm to people. Like it's really hard. And I hope that when people leave my session, they have a sense of, okay, like if this just one random person, you know, who has no background in any of this was able to do this work, was able to build these relationships, 
in Kansas, which, you know, famously a state that is not very open to change, um, like that they can too, right? That they can either replicate the work that we're doing or figure out how to replicate the process and make it work for their community. Like, I really want people to feel that optimism and that hope and that sense of like, again, like this is a conversation that we have something to contribute to. And this is a space that we have a connection to. And honestly, like, you know, this sounds kind of like grand, but a responsibility to like, we have a responsibility as um, people working in violence prevention to also be working in spaces such as housing justice. So I hope people like me also, like, I hope they think I'm cool (laughs) at the end, but um, you know, that's (laughs) secondary to like, hoping that they feel empowered to make a change honest no that's a real that is a real thing especially like working virtually there's something about conferences in this field specifically every time Mm -hmm. I go to a conference especially when I've done a session at a conference I'm like best outfit like how can I who am I gonna be how are people gonna take me and I'm like already feeling nervous about that which is hilarious Mm -hmm. because it's a month away um so that's very real I just want to validate I already think you're cool I will stand in the back of your session with a sign that says like Gabby rocks perfect um if that's perfect (laughs) yeah I think that I mean on the outfit planning like I'm already like oh my god like <laughs> what am I going to wear? I work from home. All of my clothes are like sweat shorts and like, you know, like, yeah. So, um, like I said, not as important as hoping people feel empowered to make a change, but still personally important. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very- we have to show up as our whole selves and that is part of it. And okay. My, I, Uh, Before COVID, I used to travel a lot and go to lots of conferences. And my best advice is to find your power color and build your Mm. (laughs) your week wardrobe around that. Um, Yeah. So I'm I'm big on power colors. Okay. Okay. I feel like this might resonate with you, Ashley. I grew up and like lived in kind of like rural spaces for most of my life. So like my power color is like Carhartt Brown. And it's like, I'm just imagining like wearing like coveralls like every day of the week. <laughs> I'm oh my gosh, Gabby, it. I will bring mine and we can, we can be twinning. We can be twinning okay, in our perfect. Carhartt coveralls. <laughs> That's so funny. I love okay. it. <laughs> That's a great point too, because I feel my best self in my car hearts and like a white mm-hmm. high neck tank top. And that's not something and like a carabiner on my belt loop, you know, like if you were going to say dress your coolest to make an impact, that's what I would wear. Is that what I can wear? Yes. NSAC? I don't know. Actually, you tell me probably not. Um, maybe after hours, <laughs> I'll be just like walking through with my car hearts and be like, this is me. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's because you have to find the whole professional style. It's like a whole thing. And you're like, who am I? Mm-hmm. You're standing in the middle of Banana Republic with your like $30. So you're like, what's on the clearance rack? Like, who am I? Um, <laughs> anyways, well, speaking of NSAC and like the broader kind of culture of NSAC and people connecting, as a person who's just attending and hosting a session, what is a conversation that you would like to see or hear people having at NSAC this year, whether that's related to your session, the overall theme, equity and action, or just like what we should be talking about right now? 
totally. That's a great question. And like, I have so many answers Um, to give this conversation a break from like housing justice, something that I would really like to see um, being talked about or being tackled in this space is how we can make consent education more based in power awareness and power analysis for all ages. Like, I think that the more that I do consent education with teenagers, with adults, the more I realize that it's not enough to just teach people how to practice consent, as important as that is. It's also really important to teach people how to think critically about relationships of power um, and how to be aware of the way that that might in, like affect the dynamic of practicing consent. Um, and, you know, that in, in the way that like all sexual violence prevention is connected, like that does connect somewhat to thinking about systems based work, um, because so much of that is thinking about power. I mean, that's a puzzle that I've tried to wrap my brain around so many times is like, how do we take this issue of power? How do we make something like rape culture feel tangible to people who are not in this space, you know, without totally losing buy-in? I would love if people were having that conversation so that I could like listen in and learn and, you know, take lessons back to Kansas. Um, that's a that's a great conversation, Gabby. We actually, I'm going to send you a link. We did a pot a web conference. It's been years now, but it was with an affirmative consent researcher, and her research is all tied into that. And it was super interesting. And I just I thought the conversation was great, so I'll send you a link to that if you want to check it out or look her up. And podcast shouting out podcasts in our movement, New Mexico has a great podcast. I love their podcast, their coalition. And they, I think their last episode is with Sarah Ferrado from Ohio talking about nuancing consent and bringing in those dynamics of power and not letting it be watered down to black and white. So I will put that link in the show notes and the web conference that Ashley mentioned in the show notes. Um, and lo- love, love you, New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I also love New Mexico and their podcast. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up today. Um, all right, Gabby. So for folks that are really interested in the work that you're doing, folks that whether, you know, they will be at NSAC, but especially for folks who are not going to be joining us at NSAC this year, how can people get connected to your work? Yeah, that is a great question. There are a couple of different angles um, here. So the first is that everyone and anyone can email me directly. I'm happy to set up, um, you know, a call, a Zoom, or just share resources over email. If that is what is going to be useful to someone, like I'm totally open to that. Um, and the other thing that folks can do is, um, I mentioned earlier kind of how part of the housing justice work that I'm pivoting to doing now is bolstering, um, the work of grassroots organizers in my community. And, um, I would encourage everyone to get connected with them. They have a pretty robust social media presence and, um, on Instagram and Facebook and I think Twitter, um, their handle is at Lawrence Tenants. Um, 
I'm trying to funnel as much similar to how in the beginning I started funneling my resources into supporting housing providers. Now I'm really thinking about how I can kind of support that community organizing efforts with the resources that I have now. So um, I'm really plugged into that. Um, and again, I think that that's something that a lot of prevention specialists are kind of afraid to engage with is like community organizing, grassroots, how do we connect um, as folks in the nonprofit world. But yeah, I would encourage everyone to give them a follow, um, stay plugged in with them as I'm um, pretty active in that space, both personally, but also, you know, in this weird professional, like, here's some money, go do a training together way. Um, and then um, my email is Gabby at statcarecenter.org. Folks can email me and I'm happy to, to chat. Thank you. I will link all of those and we'll follow Lauren's tenants right after this web conference via Prevent Connect. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Gabby, for being here, for chatting with us. I am excited to see you at NSAC and see this session. Me too. Yeah. I am really looking forward to it. I also am. I'm a little nervous. So again, we're just all going to wear our dungarees, get our <laughs> cheerleading points ready. Mm-hmm. I'll bring my guinea pigs, put them in the pockets. So Please. we have like, you know, like a Please. little support crew. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, I love it so much. I'm I'm super excited. It'll be really great to see everyone and meet everyone. And I appreciate you all and your thoughtfulness with the questions. This was a really great conversation. Of course. Thank you. Prevent Connect is brought to you by Valor US and the Centers for Disease Control. You can find more information about this episode along with past episodes, web conferences, and blog articles at preventconnect.org. As we work to bring you more podcasts like this one, we need your help ensuring that this podcast and others like it reaches listeners like you. Take a second to rate this podcast wherever you're listening to it. That helps us show up on main podcasting pages and reach new listeners. And of course, if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to see us cover, reach out to us and comment on this post on our Instagram page. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resource on the Go. And thank you to Valor for allowing us to share this conversation as part of our Housing for Prevention series. Listen to more of their podcasts at valor.us slash podcasts. And for more resources and information about preventing sexual assault, visit our website at nsvrc.org. You can also get in touch with us by emailing resources at nsvrc-respecttogether.org. 